0: Very good, hello everybody, I'm glad you're all here in spite of exam pressure and things like that. Um, So today we're going to be talking about one of the most exciting elections um, in India, the 15th general election of India which is the world's largest democracy. Most of you look like you will be familiar with India but um, I'll just read through a little bit of numbers here. Indian elections, um, 714 million registered voters, 543 seats in Lok Sabha, 131 reserved seats for lower castes and tribes, 28 states, seven union territories, 828804 polling stations, 6.1 million police and civil personnel, 1,055 candidates from 1055 political parties. I don't know how (laughs) many countries are represented here. If any other country can...
1: How many candidates? No,
0: the candidates must be a much larger number. Much larger, okay. 1055 political parties. Now, if any other country can claim these numbers, put up your hands and we'll be happy. (laughs) Um, The current aspirations of Indian voters are bijli Pani, and Sadak, which means electricity, water, and roads, versus what they had in the past was for Roti, Kapra, and Makan. So in, in many ways, the current Indian elections is very different. Um, the aspirations are higher. There's a large proportion of young people. 24% of um, the voters are under 35 years of age. Um, today's panel has two people who know a lot about India and Indian elections, Indian politics. Um, I tried to have a panel with proportionate representation of gender, but two men dropped out. So we're left with um, Meghna Desai and Sharmila Bose.
1: So this is over-biased to the female proportion. (laughs) We apologize for that.
0: But We should have
1: six men mm -hmm. and only two women.
0: But the point I'm trying to also make is that two men dropped out. So question about what do we do? What will what happen do we do if we men? go with proportionate <laughs> representation? So that's for you to think about. And uh, Sharmila Bose is a senior research fellow in the politics of so South Asia at the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Oxford. She's an academic and a journalist and um, an Indian with an international background. She studied political economy and government at Harvard University. Her current research is on the practice of democracy in India. As a political journalist in India, she was assistant editor and a senior political writer at the Anand Bazar Patrika group of newspapers. One of her principal activities was covering elections. She has reported on elections from the field in Uttar Pradesh, Bihar, Gujarat, and Andhra Pradesh and has campaign experience in West Bengal. In an article in the London Times last month, Sharmila described India as not a democracy, but a competitive autocracy. Now our, um, Meghna Desai doesn't need an introduction, but just briefly. <laughs> He's Professor Emeritus of Economics at LSE. Um, he was former director of ARC.
1: No, I was, I'm I'm various things, but I'm Professor Emeritus, I used to teach economics here for about 40 years
0: And (coughs) Meghnath, even before the last election was somebody who only Meghnath can say such statements and get away with it, that BJP and Congress should form a coalition so we can ask him whether he thinks it's going to happen now um So, I'm going to pass it over to Sharmila first, and then Magnat will
2: speak. Thank you, Ruth. Uh, Whatever the reason for choosing to have this discussion today, that is before India's elections have completed, so we don't know what the results would be, um, I think it's very fortuitous because it gives us an opportunity to uh, discuss the nature of India's elections and some characteristics of India's electoral politics uh, without getting distracted by the frenzied horse trading that is bound to break out uh, as soon as the elections uh, results are announced on May the 16th. Now as you know that India's elections um, usually get very celebratory coverage uh, in India and around the world and certainly there's much to be celebrated Uh, but that shouldn't make us uh, complacent or um, blind to the realities of Indian politics. Uh, What I plan to do in the next uh, few minutes is to share some thoughts about some of the important aspects of India's electoral politics and uh, to show that India's record uh, is somewhat mixed. I mean there are some elements uh, that are very positive and in fact some of them are not celebrated enough in my view. Uh, while other aspects uh, should cause us some concern. Now, first question is the question of political participation. Um, As the title of this discussion uh, says, a billion people decide, Well, not literally, as you know, I mean, billion plus is the population of India, and as Ruth pointed out, the electorate is 714 million this year, a, a very large number, yes. But not everybody votes, of course. Um, India's turnout national average uh, in general elections has been around 60% for quite a long time, a little bit less uh, or a little bit more. Um, But that has been true since the late 1960s. So around 430 million or so people are expected to vote in this election, which is still a very large number. The question is, does it matter? Does size matter? We do tend to get very obsessed with the sheer size of India's population, the size of its electorate, uh, the probable size of its elusive middle classes and so on. Uh, And does it matter? Uh, I would say yes, Uh, it does matter to an extent, in the sense that when you have a large number of people in the same country and that country practices democratic politics, you have a situation where at one go, as it were, a significant proportion of the world's population is in a a representative form of government. So it does matter to that extent. But we shouldn't get obsessed with these numbers um, uh, to to an extent that we don't examine the quality of of, uh, India's democracy. And more importantly, what some of the key trends are over time. Where is India heading? Uh, Just to stay with the turnout for for a few moments, this is the one result on which we have some reports from the four phases that have already uh, uh, been held. Appears, it appears, there's a bit of uh, up and down, but it appears that India is on course, uh, unless something very dramatic happens in the final phase, uh, to be, be uh, about the same level of uh, national turnout, probably. It so, seems that way. Now, India is often compared to the countries, other countries in the region. Um, I have not understood the the, um, uh, usefulness of that comparison. Usually, India is compared very favorably, naturally. Um, But this is what I call uh, the Bihar standard of comparison. This is because I'm from West Bengal, and for many years, when Jyoti Basu was the chief minister of of the communist government in the state, every time some of us criticized the performance of the government, government, uh, the government had a tendency to say, well, look next door. Uh, it's even worse in Bihar uh, So, poor Bihar has had uh, you know uh, uh, a rather poor quality of governance for a very long time but that's not the sort of standard you should look for for India I mean there's no point uh, comparing India to uh, the other countries of the region who do not have the same experience of democracy um, as India when India is compared to the West It's also usually been favorable in terms of political participation. For example, it is said that Western voters are apathetic. India has been compared to the United States, uh, where it was pointed out for quite some time that um, American voter participation was declining. So you had this poor developing country that was showing far greater interest in political participation than the richest and the most powerful country in the world. Um, Well, it's, it's true to an extent, but again, let's not get carried away here. Uh, The American data is actually not quite uh, as bad as uh, had been previously described. There's been some correction of how it's measured as well. But quite apart from that, in 2004, for example, in the presidential elections uh, in the United States, the American national uh, turnout was a a tad higher than uh, the Indian national average for the general elections that year. This may be a, a positive byproduct of George Bush's uh, reign which has got everybody so exercised that people are taking a greater interest in politics. And with the charismatic leadership of President Barack Obama, uh, actually the turnout has gone up a couple more points uh, in the last uh, election presidential election in the United States. Um, now, what is important is that um, India at around 60%, 58% or so in the last general election, uh, has been maintaining a very respectable um, uh, rate of participation. Uh, It's not that it's been growing dramatically in recent years, it it, it grew from the 50s, when sometimes it was less than 50% uh, in the 1960s, but by late 1960s, it was already at around 60%, and it has held steady. I think that that's a very major accomplishment of India's democracy, that it has steadfastly held on to a pretty respectable turnout for a very long period of time. And like any other long-term relationship, India's commitment to democracy and political participation um, at this steady rate is, I think, much preferable to uh, highs and lows where you might have... um, periods of great ardor followed by bouts of disillusionment as it were. Um, the title is also de- described this election as uh, being the most exciting e- election in India. Is it really? I'm, I'm not so sure. Um, 1977 the general election after emergency Uh, where nobody really knew because of the great silence that had descended on the political scene. And then what a spectacular result. Um, And in many ways that uh, election determined the fundamentals of uh, India's commitment to to democracy and the rejection of dictatorship. Uh, So perhaps that was the most exciting. Or 1989 uh, perhaps is also a very important election. Uh, Marks the uh, period of time where it's the end of the Congress party's monopoly. as a dominant uh, party. If you thought about excitement as, uh, in terms of turnout, that is, you know, high uh, participation rates, interestingly enough, the highest turnout was in 1984. That was effectively uh, a vote for the dead Mrs. Gandhi. Uh, you know, a, a sympathy vote for the very same would-be dictator who was turned out in, in 1977. But perhaps the reason why we uh, are describing this election as exciting is because none of us has any idea who is going to win, what form the government will take, and therefore what the implications are for how India will be governed from June. All we know, of course, is that it will be a coalition, uh, but uh, there's been no pre-poll alliance, so we don't know um, what shape the coalition will take. So where is all the political action? In, in India, all politics has become local. All the political action has moved to the regional and state level. Now, this is generally taken to be a very good thing uh, for a vast and diverse country like India. It's, it, it's just, it should be right that power and government should be closer to the people. Uh, and over-centralization had long been identified uh, as a problem uh, in, in India. Uh, There is no overarching national issue. Uh, That doesn't mean there aren't any issues, but um, there are are issues that are important with some variation at the local level. So the national result, uh, and and because this is an election to elect the national parliament, will actually be the summation of a multitude of other uh, elections at the lower level. But this means also that political power has shifted to the regional level. And it leads us to a very interesting question. And the question is, what does this imply for the future of Delhi in India's politics? Um, Now, important decisions, uh, whether economic decisions or foreign policy decisions, negotiations with the United States over the nuclear agreement, um, national security uh, uh, decisions uh, over the very serious threat of terrorism. Etc. are still taken, of course, at the federal level. Um, there's vast resources still located at the central level. All the regional actors aspire to capture power at the central level. Mayavati, for example, has made explicit her desire to be prime minister. Uh, others are not quite as forthcoming, but do wish to capture power at the center. So Delhi is still a very strong center in a, in a federated system. Uh, Yet, already we have seen in the last few years that the national government is in effect a confederation. And if this trend is going to continue and real political power is going to shift to the regional uh, levels, then it becomes a very interesting question as to, surely at some point the relationship with Delhi uh, will be renegotiated. And it would be very interesting to see how that plays out. Now, who are the political players uh, who, who um, uh, would be uh, renegotiating this relation and who are the important actors now? As you know, there has been a rise uh, in the last 20, 25 years of identity politics I- in India, uh, whether based on religion, uh, region, uh, or caste. Um, the other um, characteristic of India's politics uh, is the proliferation of um, autocratically run political parties, where leadership and succession uh, is determined not on sort of open competition or merit, but on family relations, or, or some other kind of personal relationship with a departed uh, leader, for example. Uh, now, sometimes this, the contest there can be contests for leadership, um, uh, but say within the family members, and sometimes it can be quite unconventional. Um, for example, son-in-law versus a widow in andhra pradesh or, or a, a widow versus girlfriend in in tamil nadu with the girlfriend winning i mean so it's it's interesting and and can be very unconventional but it's still based on personal uh, uh, or clan relationships and uh, most of these parties are completely autocratically run uh, there are some uh, exceptions for notably the bjp uh, uh, and the main communist party for example cpm uh, these are are, are not uh, these are still based on collective uh, uh, leadership, but uh, the commitment of these parties to a liberal democratic order is questioned on other grounds. Um, So the question therefore is, can the future of India's democracy really be entrusted in the hands of a bunch of people who don't really believe in democracy and don't actually practice democracy themselves? It doesn't seem logical. This doesn't mean that there's an imminent threat to uh, India's uh, democratic system. As you can see, all these autocratic and illiberal political players and and political formations are still competing through the ballot box for power to gain legitimacy, to gain access to uh, the resources of the state, to then practice their patronage politics. But they're still competing through uh, through the ballot box. So this is what I have called uh, India's competitive autocracy. So there is competition among the autocrats. Now there's still chance therefore for India to uh, transform some of these political entities into more meaningful and representative and open uh, um, uh, political formations. I mean for example the BJP could if it wanted to Uh, try to convert itself into India's conservative party or or like a a Republican party in the US. Or the BSP um, could shed its caste label. It's been trying to do that for for some time and convert itself into say a left of center uh, party. Uh, The the Congress party could take the advice of the real and original Gandhi uh, and dissolve itself. So there are all sorts of uh, possibilities uh, to actually uh, move India still uh, in, in a slightly different direction. Now, I want to make it clear that there's absolutely nothing wrong uh, with India developing its own polit- unique political system. That is, uh, I think, in fact, that's a very good thing. Um, uh, there's absolutely uh, no need uh, for India to simply uh, superimpose on itself uh, and, its, and its very different reality a political system borrowed from from the West. Uh, So uh, the fact that India's uh, politics is is churning and developing and uh, is um, forming into something very different is I think something to be welcomed uh, as a process. Uh, The question is where is is it heading and where will it find its uh, equilibrium uh, as it were? We don't know because it's still evolving. And so if uh, this uh, political development um, goes in the direction where the the system is more representative, more responsive to the critical needs of the um, vast majority of India's people, um, and, there, and it's better rooted in India's regional and local culture and concerns, then it would be an improvement on the system that India started out with in, in 1947 and in 1950. However, there is still some risk in my view now, a significant risk that it might veer into a different direction and produce more autocratic, uh, more arbitrary uh, forms of of politics. Um, So so what do these political um, uh, leaders and their parties uh, have to offer in this election? Uh, The honest answer is uh, we have no idea uh, because we don't know what conglomeration will uh, will end up uh, with power uh, at the center. Uh, There there is no um, programmatic no major programmatic differentiation between the two uh, uh, broad uh, groups uh, that have been in play uh, for a while. And and rhetoric and labels don't mean anything at all. I mean, the communists are busily promoting capitalist development in the state that they govern. Uh, uh, The scheduled caste uh, party has been wooing Brahmin candidates and and voters. Uh, The BJP is supposed to be uh, peddling religious politics, but Congress has played communal politics when it suited itself. Uh, So everyone seeks power, and seemingly at uh, any cost. Everyone has corrupt and criminal uh, members. Uh, So while there are some entities that, uh, it's difficult to think they'd be in the same group, I mean, AIDMK and DMK in Tamil Nadu are probably not going to end up in the the same coalition, but most of the regional and smaller parties uh, can go with either the Congress or the BJP, uh, in fact, have done many of them uh, already in the past. So all policy uh, positions or, or political commitments are fungible. And this also leads us to a question what does this actually, um, this sort of trend portend for the future of uh, India's democracy? I mean, it's, it's not, the problem is not the coalition. In fact, coalitions are a very appropriate form of government for a vast and diverse country like India. Uh, but if they in produce incoherent or paralytic uh, uh, governments uh, when all policy and political positions are, are treatable um, uh, then we risk not only instability but more importantly in my view ineffectual government and we have already seen that in the last five years to an extent and we, we could debate that a bit but um, uh, the, the, the UPA government you know, hasn't distinguished it, it itself in uh, in many areas that it, it could have done a better job and um, as a result of this one risks stoking you uh, know greater public disillusionment with the very system of uh, democratic uh, politics finally um, i wanted to come back to this great bandobast that uh, that we have in in india every time there is an election Um, Despite the undemocratic nature of many of India's political leaders and political parties, many, many people in India believe in in democracy and want to have a democracy. Uh, The common people of India have got used to elections. In fact, there is a festive uh, air about it, usually, uh, and um, that actually has a greater meaning. Elections seem to have become part of the festivals of India which are part of the culture, the part of the tradition of India. And this, I think, is a very, very good thing. Uh, the authorities in India, the election commission in, in particular and related uh, agencies, uh, do uh, an enormous job of, of trying to put on uh, this uh, election, as you know, and, and this is highly commendable. Yet at the same time, if you think about it, the very fact that India's general election has to be staggered, over several phases. That you have to have more than six million uh, police and security personnel uh, on duty to make this happen. Uh, That in itself is a symptom of some deep-seated problem with the way India actually practices its democracy because India should not have to do this. In spite of all this effort, uh, there is some violence There are people killed. Every time there's an election in India, people lose their lives just because there's an election. Now, the reason why India's authorities put on, uh, uh, you know, such an enormous security arrangement uh, for uh, for India is not India's size. It is because the authorities believe that if such an arrangement were not made, then a credible election could not be held in India. And that is a very sad thing. So... uh, Every time an election is held, um, you know, Indians themselves and people around the world have come to expect this spectacular exercise uh, of you know, security uh, arrangements. Uh, but I would rather look forward to a day when India will hold its general election on one day all across the country with normal policing arrangements and when that one day will be just an ordinary day. Thank you.
1: Okay, I mean, Sharmila has covered most of the structural issues, and uh, so let me uh, try and do some fairly short-run things. Uh, What will happen? Uh, Well, we don't know what will happen, but we can guess. And I'm going to guess. there are three major possibilities. Uh, one is, uh, well, basically, which would be the largest single party, and what, how many votes the largest single party would get. Now obviously, as she said, since 1989 there has never been a single, a single party majority uh, government. Uh, and not only that, but the amount of votes, number of seats you have to have in the Lok Sabha to, as it were, be a dominant player has gone down. So that Congress, uh, Congress had uh, sort of 200 plus seats in 1989 when it refused to form a government, it didn't go in a coalition. It had about 220 seats in, in 1991 uh, when it did form a government, coalition government. BJP formed the government with 182 in 1998 and 1999. And uh, in 2004, uh, Congress formed the government with 143, 145, 145. So a very interesting thing is in, in, in theory of corporate takeover, if you own 30% of the shares, you can more or less run a, com- run a company. It sort of worked out that, that that is kind of good, good threshold number to have, uh, and literally in India now, uh, any this time around, if any if any of the two, well, the two other major parties, if they repeat what they did last time, that would be good. If and right now. Everybody hung up on 150. Who will get 150 seats? And I was saying to other day somebody, 150 is good, 170 is a landslide. And they said, what? I said, 170 is a landslide. If, if by any chance, either of the two great parties, 170, politics will be completely changed. So that, that is, that's partly the consequence of the fragmentation of political parties, the regionalization, and so on. And uh, I, I consider that a very healthy healthy thing. I, I consider the regionalization, fragmentation an extremely healthy thing uh, because uh, in, in one way uh, the old model was that the Congress was an umbrella organization and anybody who had any needs had to get a slot in the Congress, in a Congress kind of a tent and Congress had this uh, hub-and-spoke system whereby the hub was held by the, the, by, by the Brahmins and they would were, they were send out their little emissaries uh, in different states or different castes or different regions and they would do the job and they'd get rewarded, which worked very well. It worked for 42 years. It wrecked the economy, practically. Uh, and interesting, since fragmentation... Indian economy has taken off. I don't think it's causal, but it's an interesting thing to do. The how the end of Congress dominance was actually the release of Indian energy. And I think both Indian economic energy and Indian political energy, because there's no reason why those guys who, you know, who kind of laid down the railroad lines of Indian politics should always have monopoly I mean there is still a dissonance in all our thinking that India is chaotic, India is unorganized, this is terrible, it shouldn't happen because we would like straight for the old days of Nehru and Indira Gandhi and there were people who spoke good English and kind of you know ran the stuff according to Westminster lives and so on. And I, I had a very uh, kind of a epiphanic uh, experience when in 1997 there was a uh, discussion about stability in Indian politics uh, at the Rajiv Gandhi Foundation and a man called Shivaraj Patil who was a speaker at that time and an incompetent Home Minister later on, uh, he had given a paper and the idea was: will political stability come back to India, i.e. will Congress come back to power on its own? That's what political stability means. And uh, because Congress was reluctant at that time to get into coalition government, they still thought eight years after that they would get back into power, a single party majority. And Kashiram, who was founder of the uh, Bhujan Samaj party, he stood up and said, I'm not interested in stability. So my people get nothing out of stability. Stability means you guys rule over us guys and that's the history of India for 3,000 years. I'm not interested in stability. I'm interested in fragile coalitions, I'm interested in uh, short-lasting governments because the more fragmented the politics the more will us kind of people have a small slice of seats but those small slices of seats will count for a lot in a coalition. And And I thought, wow, that's the first profound statement I've heard about Indian politics. In a, in, in a sort of a decades of reading. Uh, uh, because he was talking about politics as basically a uh, distribution of spoils game, Which basically what, what it's in most countries, in some countries more older than other countries, but and in India it's now openly a uh, uh, spoils government. Uh, as, uh, as Sharmila said, the important issues are at regional level, but the money is at the center and the states get money from a formula from the center, but basically ultimately the real loot is at the center. And even as the center becomes weaker, and even as some of the old government uh, uh, tasks are privatized, there's still a lot of money at the center. Uh, And therefore capturing, uh, not so much getting a seat in Lok Sabha, that is a second order of importance. The most important thing is getting a seat in government, being part of a ruling coalition, and even better, being part of a ministry. I mean, that your 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 income your income capacity just goes up, you know, exponentially. Uh, so one of the so my so coming back to the speculation, I would sort of my, stick my neck out and I would say that the most probable outcome is Congress with about 170, about 160 to 180 seats uh, and Congress will form the government uh, I don't know what partners you'll have now the reason why I say this is before the election Congress had a choice of going as a coalition as the UPA the United Progressive Alliance, and they deliberately choose to break that, and they said we're going to have no pre-poll commitments with anybody. We're going to go, and they've kind of you know messed about with with the National uh, Congress Party. They have had some alliance in Maharashtra, but not elsewhere, and they've abandoned Lalu Prasad Yadav in Bihar, uh, and you know sort of betrayed Samajwadi Party in UP, and now. I'm an economist, and economists are used to coming to conclusion with very little data, with a lot of thinking. And so I said, no, why would a party do this? Why would a party, which only had, by that time they had about 150 seats. Uh, why would a party with 150 seats take such an absurd risk? And When the budget came, Brandon Mukherjee gave the budget, they didn't bribe the electorate at all in the budget. I said, that really alarmed me. I said, Why did the party not bribe the electorates, you know, election is in So I concluded that they had some private information that they were going to get back in. And I, I have a hunch that they had a private poll done. And the private poll said, more or less, it's not your partners, your partners are weak because Lalu Yadav in Bihar would be outdone by Nitish Kumar, who has been a very good Chief Minister, and Samajwadi so Party doesn't have hope in hell because Mayawati is going to gain, and so on and so forth. DMK is going to lose, and the IADMK is going to come to power. So Congress decided, and another thing it decided, which is very crucial, which is not done before, and this I think what I call the Rahul Gandhi gamble. Uh, is to run many, many more candidates than they have run before. So in Bihar, for example, they did not abide by the alliance they had with uh, RJD and LSP, um, Lalu and Paswan, roughly speaking, who were giving them, I don't know, allocating them four seats or something like that. And uh, they were being offered about three seats suddenly. And Congress said, no, we're going to contest 32 out of 40 seats in Bihar they're going to contest lots of seats on Uttar Pradesh. And what it is, is the idea is, okay, you're giving us three and uh, maybe you're giving me three or four, maybe three or four. But if you contest 32 and make many contests multi-cornered, then even randomly we may get more than three. And that's that's, that's another very intelligent thought going on and it's been very few people have noticed it, uh, that Congress is running many, many more candidates. The only other party running as many candidates, if not more, is BSP. My wife is running 500 plus candidates. You know, I mean, this, all the money she has raised is actually going into this. You know, it's, uh, it's quite quite a smart smarter thing. And she also has taken the vision, okay, she may get, I don't know, about 40 to 50 in U.P. this time. Uh, I think she'll get about 40 to 50 U.P. this time. Uh, but if you could pick up 10 from the rest of the 450, she's running. At 60, she's a major player. So, I mean, there are, there are intelligent thinkers in, in Indian politics who sort of think strategically. So, so to come back to uh, my speculation, the, the most probable, uh, I put the probability at about 60%. Uh, of uh, Congress coming in as the largest single party uh, and then very hard to predict who it would be but I think as Shai said whoever wins Tamil Nadu would go into the government regardless of uh, 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 ideology. Uh, Andhra of course Congress, I don't know how much Congress will go but they'll take uh, the the Telangana a party with them, the TRS with them, and uh, so on and so forth. And uh, in the crucial questions are going to be, in UP, will, will Mayavati go with the Congress? Will the left go with the Congress? And will Nitish go with the Congress? Will Nitish stay out? Those are, those are three kind of big big decisions. And I suspect that if uh, the Mayavati has very little to gain from the Congress, because Congress will not give her a possible prime ministerial slot. Joining a Congress coalition, there's no probability she'll become prime minister. All she will do is, A, uh, renew Malaya, uh, Manmohan and uh, uh, make the birth warm for uh, Rahul. So where does she go with that? So she may actually choose not to not to not to join. It remains to be seen what, what they what they offer her deputy prime ministership or, or whatever. Um, but deputy prime ministership is not a, not a not a worth of uh, not worth a bowl of cherries, as it were. Uh Not not for someone like someone like uh, Maya say. But I think Congress will with with if they get 160 to 170, like I expect, people will fall over themselves to join because as I said. The premium on being part of the government, as against not being part of the government, is enormous. Uh, so, Congress will try and see whether it needs a left. Left is not going to get more than 40 seats this time, in my view, not as many as 60 they got last time, they going to much fewer this time. Uh, and, and so, they, they will have many fewer seats than, uh, than uh, Mayavati. Okay. The next possibility is of course the BJP. Uh, BJP has currently got 130, 138 seats last, last, last election and uh, in my central forecast, if Congress gets 170, I expect BJP to get 120, 130 to 120. The idea is that Congress plus BJP gets between 280 to 290. That, that is, that's kind of a national vote. The national order hasn't gone beyond that. Um, it, if it goes beyond that, it, this will be a real breakthrough. Uh, but suppose I'm wrong in my first forecast. What the best can BJP could do? Suppose BJP gets about 140 to 150. I don't think it can go beyond that. Uh, then it will, it will definitely have my in the coalition and they can actually give Mayavati, and Mayavati could ask for and get a rotating prime ministership out of BJP. They have done that in UP, uh, and they could do it again. BJP was twice in coalition with Mayavati in UP, and uh, just to spite the Congress, they'll go with my uh, and uh, it it would be it would be an exciting government. It would really be an exciting government. Because in a sense what happened in a, in the nineteen ninety eight to two thousand and four NDA was that all the kind of the, the dangerous tendencies of BJP were kept under control by the coalition partners, at least at a national level. You know, there was no Mandir after after they got into power. Absolutely no way, because Telugu there's some wouldn't have it, George Fernandez wouldn't have it, and it just didn't happen. And it could happen again. The BJP with someone like Mayavati would just have to abandon a lot of the RSS baggage uh, because she wouldn't stand for it. Um, and you could have a uh, BJP plus Mayavati plus uh, Jayalalitha, uh, you know, sort of, and, and I think uh, Mamta Banerjee would go with whoever will have her. Uh, as a minister, I mean they, they, this is this is all about everybody. So that would be another. I would put the probability of that as an, at about 25 percent, but that is not a, that is not a not an unlikely uh, coalition. Either of those two possibilities would last for five years. Either of those two uh, combinations. Then, of course, the chance is that uh, I'm being completely optimistic, and the the country is fed up of big parties and both Congress and BJP will will have less than 150 and together they may have less than 280-290 and it's much more fragmented politics. If that happens then Sir Prakash Karat's dream comes true and we have a third front government. The third front government would be Mayavati, lalita CPM, CPI, uh, and then maybe NCP will join you also have to understand that at this stage, there are a number of men, men, mother and women, of sort of 60 years plus, who are facing the prospect that they will never become Prime Minister in their lives. And they are terrified. And they are willing to do anything to become Prime Minister. Sharad Pawar is one of them. Lalu Yadav is another. Uh, Mulayam Singh is the third. And if you look, you see Mayavati, Mayavati and Narendra Modi are in their fifties. They have plenty of time. Rahul Gandhi is even younger than that. Rahul Gandhi and Varun Gandhi are even younger than that. Uh, but these, you know, I mean, Pranab will never become prime minister. which is going. Noni Durgan Singh become prime minister, and charat Pawar still is hoping that some combination, some some sort of uh, coalition, will say you are the most senior person in terms of politics and you become. a... I don't think there is any chance of Sharad Tawar becoming Prime Minister. Put my my kind of money down on that. I think the Third Front cannot go by except with Mayawati as Prime Minister. So the Third Front uh, will definitely, Mayawati will be the largest single party in the Third Front. If you don't have BJP and don't have Congress, the third largest party is going to be Mayawati, without any doubt. Now, all the left, for all the four left parties together may come up to 45, may even be 50 at, at an extreme but they're not going to get up to Mayavati. So Mayavati, uh, Mayavati plus Jailalita plus Sharat Power plus Lalu Yadav plus Paswan. Uh, Mulayam has difficulty being in, in the same coalition uh, as Mayavati. So Mulayam will not go in there. Uh, and that coalition will have to be in power on the sufferance of BJP and Congress. I, if BJP and Congress were to were to unite, uh, such a coalition could not could not command majority in the uh, in the Lok Sabha. But you could have uh, BJP and Congress so vicious about each other just to keep each other out. They would they would promise not to destabilize the coalition immediately. That coalition will not last four years. a third uh, no 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 coalition since 89 without BJP or Congress in it has lasted uh, at all very long. VP Singh did not last very long uh, that, those you know there were a couple of prime ministers at that time and they lasted two years and then with the and 98 the UDF and LDF they lasted two years uh, and that is the that is lifetime of a non-Congress, non-BJP coalition. Uh, and that, that would, that would, be, that would in, will not be a bad thing, uh, because it may clarify matters. It may, may, it may allow people to make up their minds as to whether a non-BJP, non-Congress uh, sort of possibility is really worth exploring. I, I, I'm I'm very open-minded about it because again, also as Sharmila uh, employer is said, policy is not going to change. The continuity of Indian e- political and economic policy is staggering. Whatever the rhetoric, the Left Front, in the, when they were in power in 1996 to 1998, did not reverse liberalisation. They did not push it, but they did not reverse it. And I would even say that if they came to power, they would do nothing about the nuclear deal. The the immense complexity of getting out of a sovereign agreement will come to them the day after they get into power. The Minister of external Affairs will tell them, in words of one syllable, what they can, what they cannot do. So that's all. And that is why I think (coughs) India is happy with fragmented politics. That on most policy issues there are no major differences. The one major kind of fault line going through, which I think is a fake fault line, but the fake fault line going through is what's called communal versus secular. It's completely fake, but you know, life is too short for me to explain to you why it is completely fake. But that is a pretense that somehow some parties will not go with BJP in a coalition. And that, that's, just, that's just costly rubbish. Uh, They're all, because they have no principle, they'll all go wherever they are. Uh, the, the left may think twice before going with the BJP. But right now, the left hates Congress more than it hates the BJP. I don't know why, but they were immensely offended. By the fact that on the US nuclear deal, they made a move, and Manmohan outsmarted them. They really, really hate him for that. Uh, they did not expect him to be so cunning, and he pro- proved to be very, very cunning. So, so they, they, there are these, there are these three, three possible. So, with, with the, you know, most likely the first possibility, then the second one, and the third, third one, uh, which which would be about, about 10-12 percent uh, probability. There is a, there is an outlier, a black swan. I don't, mean we, I don't know if you people know what black swans, but black swans are very popular right now because of the stock market crash. Black swans are extremely rare events. Um, and that is Congress with 220 seats. And that, I think, could happen. Low probability, but cannot be ruled out. Everything I hear from people inside uh, I, this is extremely unreliable. Uh, here's the evidence. tells me that the insiders of the BJP are despaired of getting more than 125, and the insiders of Congress cannot believe that why they're keeping up, turning up uh, their forecast of more than 180. Now, it may be that both sides are diluted. Both sides are looking for evidence, and but uh, it's not unlikely, and I'll tell you one reason why it is, and that is NREGA, which again, very few people have really picked up on. NREGA is the Employment Guarantee Scheme. Now, I, when it happened, I did not. I think it would be corrupt and horrible and a complete waste of money, and uh, it won't happen. But NREGA, which promises uh, rural families 100 days of work if nobody, no adult is at work, has now been going on for I don't know, about two, three years, and some very, very good estimates of how it has impacted. And because the estimates were made by Jean Dres, formerly of the LSC, and is one of one of the one of the best, somebody who knows India very well. When that because he's a foreigner, uh, and that's why you know all foreigners know India better than Indians. Uh, but uh, Jean Dres had an article <coughs> in Frontline uh, earlier this year, and, and very carefully done in many states, Rajasthan, Madhya Pradesh, Uttar Pradesh, and so on, that on average families have been given 43 days' work. Uh, this is an average. Uh, and more work has been given to women than men. And of course, there's a usual story that people try to shortchange people. But again, because of the new media climate, one of the great miracles in India is this this hundred news channels. The hundred news channels and the ability of people to send out pictures through their mobile telephone has meant that a variety of rural situations, uh, corrupt people have been caught by people just, you know, filming that and Suddenly on ND, uh, NDTV or on, on CNN, IBN, mean, certainly there's a picture of this man taking bribe or something like that. And rural mm-hmm. vote in India is, I'm going to, I, I believe, going to make a lot of difference. And <clears throat> secondly, there's also some evidence that during the first quarter of 2009, in terms of economics, rural demand has stayed up better than urban demand because it was less affected by credit creation, credit crunch. It was sort of, and these are two sort of straws in the wind. And because of that, and because in India typically middle classes don't go out to vote, the 60% vote that Sharmila talked about is heavily voted, heavily weighted in favor of the poor. The poor and the rural people go out and vote. The urbans and the middle classes don't go out. To so uh, Mumbai ended up having a 41-42% turnout, uh, which is, which is sort of, you know, Deli after – yeah, Delhi, Delhi had 57 some, – Delhi had 57 – Delhi had something in, in, in the 50s. But typically, uh, the middle classes don't vote. Urban uh, areas vote less, and therefore So then the question is, is it just caste? Will they vote or will they vote uh, some economics? And I'll I'll stop, so I'm I'm saying we're too long. One of the most remarkable stories uh, has been uh, that because since 2004, there were four successive years of 9% plus growth which India has never had before. And partly because of the the reforms done by both uh, the, the NDA government and later on by uh, UPA government, revenue collection has been fantastically good in India. And uh, the revenue, public uh, the central revenue, were growing at 30% per annum in, in the first four years of, of the UPA government. Uh, and they have been spending money like there is you no know, tomorrow i mean in the in the budget before last they gave away this is a two thousand and eight budget they gave away sixty thousand crores of debt cancellation for farmers it 's actually a, it's actually a sort of a, a paper exercise whereby banks are given a permission to cancel the debts on their books if they have given the loans to farmers but You know, I I left India in 1961, and 60,000 crores is kind of a number I can't get my head around it. But uh, that that is uh, that is a lot of rupees, and 60,000 is 600,000 million, and that's 600 billion rupees, uh, and that's a lot of money. (laughs) Wherever it has gone, Uh, if that much debt has been forgiven, uh, and of course on the other hand there were all the stories of farmers suicides and so on but that's an amazing and that was done in 2008 June or something, May or June uh, and suddenly after promising to balance the budget and so on the latest numbers are deficit is up. Okay, the recession gives an excuse but this is why they didn't spend very much money in, in the latest election they've sp- been spending money like like nothing and spending money all the kind of a Bijli pani kind of a Bijli pani Sarak bipasha as it's called uh, uh, the sort of uh, things and um, and so it may be again I'm being, I'm being very cautious and qualifying myself it may be that there has been some intelligent thinking and this I have to attribute to Sonia Gandhi who is the, who is other strategic synchrony in politics. There are about two or three, one is Sony and one is Mayawati, but not many more. Uh, uh, and they're all women. Um, <laughs> men in Indian politics don't think. Uh, uh, and it just may be that in this way, thanks to four years of 9% growth, thanks to a lot of revenue, that the government has been able to do, the government has also been able to give a lot of money to individual states. And what happened in December uh, 2008 state elections is that chief ministers were elected who had delivered on the ground uh, the things that the voters wanted, roads and houses and you know. Uh, and so we already seen one version of that in December 2008. Uh, and except for Rajasthan, where Narendra Raja lost because the party was divided, in Delhi, Madhya Pradesh, Chhattisgarh, uh, there were there were people who won, were people who had actually delivered uh, on good governance. So it may be, it just may be, and I'm putting this as an extreme, but not unlikely event. The Congress may all the time know what they were doing, and they certainly end up. And if that happens. Indian politics would change for twenty years. That would be that would be an enormous event in Indian politics, which is why I don't think it's very likely. But one should not roll it out, because if that happens, then the dynasty is back in power. The dynasty will, you know, that will have an intelligent way for the dynasty to come back to power, because it, Congress could become a much more national party, with MPs scattered across the country because they have contested many more seats than um, than, than, any, than anybody else. And then we can reverse. they'll break the cycle of coalition politics. It may not happen, but it could happen. We, we only have another so seven days before we'll, we'll, eight days before we'll find out. Uh, and, uh, but I, I, I have to say that I, I still find is one of the most remarkable phenomenon in world politics. We mustn't forget that India is an older democracy than majority of countries in the European Union, if you want a sobering thought, uh, and that includes Germany. Uh, Germany and Greece and and you know all the things to the east, uh, none of them had any, uh, Spain, Portugal, uh, they're all younger democracies in India. And uh France and, and, and Belgium, for example, has has been in a deadlock for I got about, about now ten months because of the on the one hand there are Walloon parties, on the other hand that there are there are you know, there are the <coughs> Flemish and the French. And Flemish parties and Frencher parties the Flemish Socialist Parties and the French Socialist Parties, <laughs> and, again, and there's a complete deadlock because they can't come to come to an agreement about forming a forming a majority coalition government. Uh, the Dutch have similar sort of uh, systems. So on the France had the Fourth Republic, full of coalition governments. Italy has had you know, hundreds of governments, not hundreds, but many governments over its sort of 55 years of being a democracy. Uh, so I mean, India, India, India is a, India is a, is a, is a, seriously, uh, robust democracy, worth, worth uh, studying much more than people do. By which I mean you guys ought to study it. I'm not going to study anything anymore. I've done my my bit. I'm just enjoying retirement. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Since you're an absolutely select audience, I'm sure you've realized that you couldn't have read this anywhere in any online journals or any newspaper. And so I'm sure you have loads of questions. But before I open it out to questions, I'm going to I have two questions one of the audience and one of the panelists. Um, the question of the panelists is I don't that. I you're very
1: audible. You're allowed to speak the up. The
0: question uh, to the panelists is. Um, why? What do you think Shashitaru's motive is in going back to Kerala and contesting for elections? But I'll give you time to wait. I'll ask the audience first and then you can answer. Um, and the question I have for the audience is, uh, are there any political aspirants in this audience? Hands up. Anybody wants to join politics when you finish studying at LSE? Or whatever you're doing? No? Yes, oh, yes, excellent! So good for you. <laughs> what about, very good. Uh, what about you, Meghna? Did you ever aspire to join Indian politics? No, uh,
1: I, I was I was brought up in a in a system where all my aspirations were to become a civil servant. The middle, Indian middle class families prepared their children to get good, steady, permanent jobs. And it was it was just not thought of that you could uh, join a political party. I, mean, I don't know why not. I mean, I, I would have had a, a, a materially much more successful career I had I joined something in 1950. I did go to the founding meeting of the Satantra Party in 1960, and I did that because I did think at that time that uh, what India needed was a right of centre party. Which had no nothing to do with religion, either for or against southern party didn't have to be secular because the whole idea was it, it, it was a completely modern party, but it was denounced as a party of business people and you know capitalists and all that, and they they got uh, they got up to the emergence after the emergency when they got absorbed into the Janata party and got destroyed. and as I uh, <clears throat> I was saying. It would be a great coup for BJP to become a right-of-center, normal party and shed all this nonsense of these chadiwalas uh, that, that, that they are, they are, they are with. Uh, and they, they, they could do that. They, they, you know, there are people within the BJP, people like Arun Jaitley, Arun Shourie, who are perfectly capable of running a right-of-center, sober, straightforward party. But they are burdened by this, uh, you know, this Rajanath uh, kind of people, who just, who just you know, live in the 13th century. Uh, and so you can't, you, can't, you know, uh, you can't do anything about them. And uh, again, hopefully, if uh, BJP have a serious defeat this time, they might sober up. They really just might sober up, but who knows. Anyway but she wanted to join politics <laughs>
2: oh, did I, I, I couldn't join uh, Indian politics either because uh, contrary to what you said Ruth I'm born American so India considers me a foreigner I have campaigned on the ground Sonia
1: family, Gandhi, Gandhi is your <laughs> Sonia Gandhi <is> your, <laughs> can, be, can be Prime
2: Minister I'm considered a foreigner I'm okay. afraid so, um, so, so uh, I, I can't run for uh, President of the United States apparently oh okay,
1: okay. okay right the, there's still hope. Uh, 2016, okay. how about that? What
0: about the
1: Tharoor question? You know, I, I actually, I think it's an extremely unimportant event that Shashi Tharoor is running for parliament. I mean, it's like Amitabh Bachchan running for parliament. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously. Because Shashi Tharoor is in his, his, his kind of a glamorous person. No, he was a UN, whatever he was, and he's a very good friend of mine. But you know, and but I don't know that he would get very much in Congress politics, even if he wins, because uh, there are substitutes for him in India, perfectly good substitutes. You know, he yeah, loses I mean. vo- his one advantage he has that he's away. From India and can sit in New York and write good books, when he is in India in the middle of a uh, middle of dirty politics, he will get wiped out by by other other guys who, who also can read books, but they, who who know where the bodies are buried. No, I I I feel I I wouldn't say I feel sorry for Shashi, but I feel that. Uh, I, mean, I have American friends who are kind of waiting to find out what happens to Shashi Tharoor. I have to tell them that you know nothing. Not, nothing in Indian politics mm-hmm. is going to change because Shashi Tharoor has, has got a ticket in, in Kerala. I mean, wow. Uh, so true, what?
0: But that's also why it makes it even more um, curious as to he may why. win, he may not but win. But why so does if he it, want he to may do not this? Not
1: I have no polite way of describing, uh, <laughs> answering that
2: question. In, in Idrude, I'm not sure why uh, the question is that important. I agree with uh, uh, Magnet that uh, it's not very important. I think it would be hard for him to win uh, in, in where he is uh, fighting, uh, even if he did, he did win. Um, and I don't think I can think of a polite way to uh, d- describe his motivation. Uh, yeah. right.
0: Over to you guys' questions. We'll take three at a time. One, two. Anyone else? Okay, we'll start with these two. Yes. Um, thanks for um, your talks, it's very interesting. Um, Can we hold it closer Yes.
1: <laughs>
2: um, I've actually been asked to uh, sort of uh, contest elections in India. I've been working with Dalits in Eastern UP, in UP actually. So I've been following sort of the whole evolution of the BSP uh, really at the grassroots. And, but I mean, it's
3: an Italian national, so you know, <laughs> no chance for me. But um, what I'd like to ask is um, um, if there has been uh, a
2: transformation in BSP politics uh, from Bahujan Samaj to Sar Samaj, and there is also, I think, um, what I see, a new politics of caste after caste politics as we know it, um, wouldn't it be possible for a regional party, as they're contesting everywhere, um, So, to actually uh, become a national party? Would you sort of envision that? Okay. okay.
1: There's one question. Another question?
0: Okay. Here, in the front. front.
1: Yeah, my, my question is regarding mayawati and. As, as you mentioned that she strategically has more candidates and she has 500 candidates and she's strategically playing the elections.
2: But why isn't this apparent in the way she campaigns and, or in the way she actually gives her speeches or in the way she, her party is run in terms of her being the only leader
1: who's kind of out there. Uh, so why isn't this apparent in the way she runs her party? Is there another question? No? One more? I think any more
0: questions? So these two questions
2: are actually related, yeah. so you yeah. might yeah. as well uh, take them uh, together.
1: Why you go first,
2: Yes. Um, the uh, BSP, has, has, it's, as, as uh, Meghda pointed out, and it's strategic thinking on Mayavati's part, she has also in the past run a very large number of candidates. And the purpose is to, to actually sort of habituate her, her party uh, and habituate the, the country to her party. Uh, as, uh, and uh, towards the goal of, of being uh, a national party. It certainly break out uh, outside of the original region uh, that she, she was from. So, so that's uh, definitely a, a, a clear a- aspiration and she does have strategic thinking behind it. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not sure I quite uh, get the point of the uh, second question, so I'm going to defer oh, that to, to, to Meghna.
1: Uh, no, I, I have, okay, uh, the short answer to that is read my article in Prospect this month. Uh, but, you know, I think what's interesting about Mayavati is that she is actually not very different in terms of corruption or style or, or arrogance from most other people, especially UP politics. You know, Mulayam Singh Yadav is not any any icon of anything. What, where she is different is she has an in-your-face style of politics. She's an innovator because in India, you, when you get to success, you're supposed to be completely hypocritically modest. Oh, I did nothing, sir, it's all thanks to you, you know. I'm, I'm, that whole futile mentality that you have to, no matter how successful you are, no matter how corrupt you have to, you know, are you, I'm my humble abode and all that. She says nothing. She throws him in the face. She's not grateful that she has got to worship because she believes she did it all herself and nobody else helped her. And that actually, in terms of style, is very similar to a for certain phase of black politics in America, where where people threw it saying, come on, you know, we are here not because of you, thank you very much. We are here because of ourselves. And if you don't like it, you can, you know, uh, go to hell. Now. That shows that Mayavati has gotten under one thing, that for her, as it were, audience, what's important is her assertiveness. What's important, you know, if you see uh, Vasundhara Rajay or uh, Sushma Swaraj, they don't have to be any of those things. They are already in. They are already at the top. They can afford to be polite. This woman has to go on being assertive to get. And isn't it amazing that this party is only twenty-five years old? Right, BSP is only twenty-five years old uh, as of as of this year. And uh, uh, you have this um, possibility. Everybody's writing articles about Mayawati, the Newsweek, and everything. And that that is a remarkable political career. And, because, sorry, I'm, I'm, and I'm actually a great fan of Mayavati precisely because she has upset the upper caste so much. I have heard people say on television, if she gets prime minister, I'm leaving the country. Wow! <laughs> at last, at last, at last the lower orders of India have done something to upset them sufficiently, upset people sufficiently. Ambedkar was too polite. You know, Ambedkar was like Martin Luther this woman is like uh, Louise Farrakhan, you know, (laughs) hell with you. And she succeeded.
2: I think if the question was why does it work with her, I think that has a lot to do with who the the community she represents. Uh, If you had an upper caste being as arrogant, you may not have had the same reaction, because her assertiveness is actually symbolic. Of, of the coming of age and uh, the rise to, to some uh, relationship of power of the, of the absolutely downtrodden uh, bottom uh, caste, uh, castes of, of India. And so it's the politics of dignity, which I'm sure you've studied about yeah. uh, at LSE, yeah. where it doesn't matter to a lot of her followers that she's corrupt, uh, just like everybody else. Yeah. What matters is her getting somewhere is, in, in a way, symbolic of their achieving power vicariously yeah. through her.
1: Yeah. But also, I me mean, think, about the earlier question, which is, when she came to power in UP, uh, first time long ago, but much more lately, she did assert that uh, reservations should not be based on caste, but on economic deprivation. I mean, she was the first... She had, being a Dalit politician, she can break away from it. She doesn't have to uh, worry about it. You know, it is like a, a black politician being able to say, affirmative action is all right, but we have to do it for all the poor people, not just by... Now, she has not been able to implement that so far. But her, her strategy, including Brahmin uh, candidates and so on, is not cynical. She has seen that in UP context, The power has, power and economic and political has drained away from the Brahmins. It's gone to the Thakurs and the the others. And so she said, okay, we will, so she's a Brahmin-Dalit Muslim alliance. And she's building that up and she's building it across the country.
0: Yeah, I think that's the unique thing about Mayavati because if you look at caste alone, yes, she's achieved as a Dalit, but then you have the case of Jayalalitha, who's equally arrogant. But I think what's special about Mayavati is that she's been able to get the Brahmin and the Dalits together. No,
1: but there's another, sorry, another. South is very different from the North (laughs) because in the South, the anti Brahmin movement started in the 19th century, and the Justice Party was very powerful, and uh, reservations were actually given in 1909 in Madras province. So this, uh, the caste politics of South is very different caste politics. North is completely backward. North, north North is really Hindu upper caste dominated. In the south, uh, when Mandal happened, Jayalala was chief minister, and she said if we implement this, we'll have to reduce the number of reservations we already have, thank you very much. And so, you know, the su- su- south, south and north are completely, you know, almost two different countries in, in caste terms. Anyway. Yeah, uh, I just
3: wanted to, um,
2: uh, point out of uh, just a couple of points in which I uh, disagreed with the, the magnat, as we were distressingly you know, in agreement on too many things. Uh, I see that you have um, uh, predicted a landslide uh, for, for the Congress <laughs> with 60% probability. And I, I wanted to contest that uh, a little bit. Um, uh, having covered elections, I guess I'm more timid. Uh, in, and I know when I see a known unknown, and that's, that's what the result is. I'm not sure where the the seats, the extra seats for Congress is going to come from because they are are dependent on a few areas uh, largely. In Andhra Pradesh, where a a bulk of the seats currently comes from, uh, they're bound to lose a few. Maharashtra they may hold, thanks to Sharad Par, etc. They will win a few uh, in West Bengal because of the new alliance with Trinamool Congress and so on. So I'm not sure where the, uh, uh, you know, the extra seats will come from. And the Rahul Gandhi gamble actually has been tried before. I mean, they tried it in Uttar Pradesh by not going uh, in a previous election, not going uh, in for any uh, coalitions, pre poll alliances, and, and came forth. Uh, it did extremely badly and therefore then went back. Uh, in the last election to coalition politics. So uh, I'm not sure, I think, Meghna, you, you um, uh, are assuming far too much intelligence and rational thinking uh, among the Congress uh, leadership uh, to think that they, they must have some reliable secret I- information um, about, uh, about the possible poll results. Uh, Just one other comment about uh, nobody being untouchable, really. Of course, uh, we agree that uh, nobody has any principles, so everything is fungible. Just to remind uh, the audience, even the left, which says that it will never go with the BJP, the left has gone with the BJP in the past, uh, many years ago, when they were forming an anti-Congress front. So it's actually not true that they wouldn't, uh, wouldn't go. And the last uh, comment about the significance of the rural vote. You're absolutely right, uh, rural India votes at a higher rate than uh, urban India. <coughs> but the thing is, they've been doing that since 1984. So that's not actually new uh, in, in recent elections. So the real test would be uh, how they vote. I mean, are they now going to reward performance uh, as opposed to identity?
0: OK. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> Okay, so one, uh, you, you, and Sumita.
3: Um
1: My question isn't a very on-the-ground question, but in the foreseeable future, the near future, do you see India having a country which
2: sees itself as Indian and not based on religion, no caste politics, no
0: religious politics, no minority politics, and, as you said before, actually work on reservations for the poor rather than caste and actually see themselves as Indian,
2: and North and South having a similar system. And you know, I mean, do you see that in the near future, rather than when I'm 100 years old?
3: Can
0: you pass the mic too? Uh, My question is regarding the size of
2: constituencies in India. I mean, if you compare uh, in House of Commons, you have like one MP for every hundred thousand population, as in India, you have one MP for around two million population. So how does it influence the parliamentary politics and uh, how the MPs manage the con- such
1: a large size constituencies?
3: Yeah. Um. Uh, Professor, I really enjoyed hearing you. (laughs) I must say that. Um, It is not in the form of a question. Rather, I was wondering. uh, You came up with a probable combination of these coalition government. And one of them is BJP and uh, Mayabati. Um, I was just wondering that Mayabati being, of course, a a leader, a political leader for the Dalit caste, also been tainted often with extortion cases, you know, in UP uh, collecting extortion of large amount and, um, I mean, filling up hard booty to buy the portfolios. Um, a, a political leader of this kind, though representative of uh, the Dalit um, population, and uh, coming probably, coming with a combination of uh, BJP, I, I really wonder um, uh, what, kind of, what kind of advantages you really see if that, that combination makes a governance? Uh, the, the first uh,
0: we'll yeah. we, yeah. we, we go around next round. so the
2: first question is so the, the, whether Indians will be in, in, Indians um, <coughs> if uh, India's economic uh, growth and, and I should say not just growth but the sharing of the uh, fruits of that growth uh, more equitably uh, um, continues to go at a, a fast pace in other words if India gets rich I, I think uh, there will be real um, uh, incentive for everyone to have a stake uh, in India uh, as a project. Otherwise, it, it is uh, the other identities are very strongly entrenched and have grown stronger over time, partly because of the electoral politics of India. That's the irony of it. Uh, so I, I think uh, money will make the difference there.
1: That was my answer I to the first question. Parliament, size, uh, size, size of the parliament,
2: size of, of I, I, I do. <laughs> I mean, uh, the person I campaigned for in West Bengal had one. Fourteen lakhs, I think one and a half million uh, strong, huge uh, constituency, rural, urban, mixed. You asked how the how do they manage, uh, how do the MPs manage with difficulty. I think, certainly in that case, that was one of the reasons why um, uh, the the MP funds were started, so that the MPs could start providing something concrete. Uh, MPLAD, which had its own uh, own problems, but um, uh, it was. The one way to, only way to deal with that would be to have uh, even larger numbers of MPs, uh, and which has its uh, problems in terms of managing uh, parliament. So um, there isn't a real uh, clear answer. It is a large, large uh, country. The best answer is let its politics and gov- governance come closer to the people and mostly take place at the regional or state level. That's the best answer. And uh, the last question was from
1: Hignath. Okay. Uh, now, first of all, the first question. You know, I used to worry about that because, uh, you know, growing up in the 50s, I, I, I'm not just, i mean, even now, I believe in this individual liberal model of democracy. Because modern, rational, that individuals are. And that sadly is, is just not true and nothing whatsoever to do with poverty. In 1960 there was a novel in, in America it was called 360. It is all about how this man political science, invented this strange idea of breaking up the voters into 360 different cells and how the winning candidate had to have policies which would cover the majority of the cells to get elected absolutely cynically. And this is exactly how American politics is connected. You have to go by grade of what kind of different Christian churches, Jews, and then south, north, rural, urban, industrial, so. and as a candidate goes around in Michigan and says something he's not going to say in Georgia. Of course he's not going to say in Georgia. Now, what, what does it say? It says that Indians are too uncomfortable about, are too worried about this lack of a single overarching identity. That comes from the anxiety about partition and all that. Sixty years after independence, we can be relaxed about this. India's it, no this India is not going to break up. No way is India going to break up. We just relax. And the proliferation, the fact that people have been able to do these identities openly, all that happened in the Congress days, it was it was done surreptitiously. It was always that Jagjivan Ram was always there. Uh, he didn't know very many people any good, but he was there. Uh, I think let people have multiple identities. There's nothing wrong with that, because very often, especially unless governance improves, as sharma uh, was saying, and there's some some evidence it may be improving, unless that improves. People's claim on the public goods, public fisc, is mediated through the agency of the caste. That's the current situation, that if you want something in India, you have to have an agent. An agent asks for your identity card, which caste are you from, which region are you from, which language are you from, and they will serve you for that reason. Rational all India parties where you people join, as again, as, as except for the BJP and the left, there are no such parties. In the UK, I, I joined the Labour Party in 1971, I had no problem, I, I went to meetings, and I, I went to monthly meetings of my ward and my, my constituency parties. Now, very few in India know that's how you get into politics. You know, all the, all the agonizing after 2016-11, which I saw on television, the middle classes thought as soon as they join politics they will get rid of corruption. I must join. That's not the right thing. Politics a long process. And look at the B.S.P. The B.S.P. has had the patience 25 years. Mayavati contested three times before she won at the fourth time. middle class have no patience in India. They have this ideal picture they wanted to be having quickly because that's what they used to. Koi hai, ye coffee le You know, corruption-free government le <laughs> what is this? That's not going to happen. So, I, but I think there are good things happening because as I was saying in the, in, in the December elections, the state elections, good governance candidates were winning. And it may be that, uh, uh, you know, that, but it will happen over time and people may still hang on to their identity like, like, like they do in America. I think America is a much more interesting model for Indian politics than any European. Ah, uh, politics. The Europeans have a very different kind of thinking about identity. To come to the uh, question about parliamentary seats, you know, until until the nineteen seventies, a British MP rarely went to his constituency. And Aaron Bevan, a good left-wing man, used to go to his constituency once a year.
0: The idea, sir. So he couldn't claim for two
1: houses. No, like, he can't houses. But the idea that ha- it all came from the liberals, I tell you, they are the other villains. The liberals started doing what's called pavement politics in the 1970s, picking up people's grievances, you know, doing something, and then every other MP had to do it. And the idea that MPs have to sit in their constituencies and have you know have surgeries and so on, it happened from the 70s onwards. But now, say, take, take Scotland. In Scotland, a person has an M, a European MP, an MEP, an MP, an, MP, an MSP, uh, maybe two kinds of MSP, because one is a constituency MSP, other is it's a regional MSP, and maybe a local authority person. you got five people to serve you. And in India, one must not forget that there are also many more people representing and than just the MP. The MP, then the MLA, and so on. So there, there, there are multiple levels of, and very often for what you want, you may want to go to your MLA and not your MP, uh, or or your or your, um, your local municipal or, or district level or panchayat, whatever it is. So I think uh, 500 seems very 543 seems very few uh, for 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 713 million voters but uh, they don't have to do everything. And again one of the remarkably good things is if increasingly power is devolved, say at the panchayat level, village level, town level, then you know, let, the, let the Delhi wallahs do strategic things and let, let, the, let the day to day. Uh, what is surprising and what's been forgotten in India because Congress has obliterated Indian history uh, in which congress did not play any role uh, the 1935 government of